Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke 7, 36 to uh, 50. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it's going to be on the screen. It'll be, uh, it's in the green piece you received when you came in. Um, this is a phenomenal story in the life of Jesus. And what I want to do just quickly is just read the two verses that precede it, verses 34 and 35, and then we'll read the story uh, as we walk through it. Verse 34 and 35, Jesus says this. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray for God's word. Lord, your word in Psalm 36 says that your steadfast love extends to the heavens and your faithfulness up to the clouds. That is the hope in which we stand. For there is no other. So God, as we stand in that hope, we ask that you would show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Seeing is believing, right? Seeing is believing. It's an adage we all believe in. But is it really true? In the story that we're about to read, one of the first things that struck me, and I think one of the things that will strike you, is that there are two people who sit in the same room with Jesus, who have a face-to-face encounter with him, who hear him, who physically see him, and they have vastly different reactions. One worships him, and one hates him. Is seeing really believing? And in fact, if you look through the Gospels, what you see, and Kind of what I hear people say all the time is, if I could have just been there, you know, if I could have seen Jesus walk on that water, if I could have seen him, you know, multiply bread out to 5,000 people, if I could have seen those things with my eyes, I would really believe and I would really do all these things. But what you notice when you read the gospel is the people that saw him and heard him and saw the miracles and watched Jesus perform these things, they had some of the hardest hearts of anybody in scripture. We're going to see one of those people today. But if the problem isn't with our physical sight of him, what's the problem? John Calvin put it well when he said, uh, you do not see the midday sun, or they do not see the midday sun. In other words, the sun is there, it's right overhead, it's bright, it's brilliant, it's glorious, it's shining down, and yet it's not seen. It's hard to see the midday sun if you're caught looking in a mirror. So the question about the sun is, it's not really, do you know about it or do you believe the sun exists? It's, have you seen the sun? And the question for us this morning is not, regarding God, is not, uh, do you know about God? It's not, uh, do you understand some of the things about Him? It's not even, do you believe in Him? The question this morning is, have you seen Him? Have you seen Him? As we walk through this story that we're going to read, maybe, perhaps, it is my prayer that maybe some of you for the first time, as Kennedy said, she saw him for the first time on that trip to Honduras. Maybe for the first time you will see him this morning. Maybe some of you who have seen him before and your hearts have kind of grown 
cold or weary or callous. Maybe you'll see him again. Maybe your heart will be sparked and enlivened and awakened to the sight of Jesus. I want us to look first how this story begins, 36 to 38. Luke says this, One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, he took the place at the table, and behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair of her head, and she kissed his feet, and she anointed them with ointment. You notice Luke uses that word Pharisee three times right in the first two verses. Now you don't need to know the thousands of pages have been written about Pharisees. What you need to know is that Jesus is going to eat with a good man. He's going to eat with a moral man, an upstanding, religious, righteous man who knows scripture, a man that is well respected and liked in the community, a man with a good career and a good name. Jesus is going to eat with this man. He's invited and so he goes. And what you need to know is that if you went to a meal like this, it's a, it's a prestigious meal. It's a meal where rabbis and teachers and you know, intellectuals are gathering together to talk about theology. And so what would happen is you would have this meal in a courtyard. It's not like us. You know, We have a meal in our dining room. Nobody else, none of the neighbors are coming over to watch us have a meal. In their day, they had a meal in the courtyard. And anybody that wanted to could come and stand on the wall and watch. And so this prestigious meal draws a crowd. And lots of people come and stand on the wall because they want to hear, what is Jesus going to say? What is this Pharisee going to say? What's the conversation going to be like? There's a picture here. You can see they didn't quite eat like us. They ate on these, these low couches, and they would lean on their left elbow. Their right hand would use for kind of a common dipping into the food, and their feet would be back behind them because the feet were considered uh, dirty. And so you kind of need to have this picture in your mind as you think about how it's going to unfold When Jesus goes to this house, when he knocks on the door and the door is open, certain things are supposed to happen. There's a custom that is supposed to be met, a custom of hospitality. You know, we have it in our day, right? I mean, if you go to somebody's house, you don't really know, you know, you you knock on the door, you're there there for dinner, what are they going to do? They invite you in, they offer to take your coat, they ask you to sit down, they, you know, is there, can I get you something to drink, anything like that? There's a certain code of hospitality, and, and if... If, if somebody invites you to their house and they don't open the door for you, they don't welcome you in, they go off into another room and don't engage in your conversation, they don't take your coat, they don't do any of those things, what would you think? You'd think, these people are rude. What's the matter with them? You probably would stand up and walk out because the people were so rude. Well, it's important in our day. It was more important in their day. You see, when Jesus came to the door, certain things were supposed to happen. Simon was supposed to open the door and welcome him as a fellow rabbi, as a fellow teacher. He was supposed to kiss his hands, greet him with a kiss. He was supposed to bring water to pour on his feet to wash because uh, they walked on these dusty, dirty roads. He was supposed to anoint a little oil on his head, a sign of refreshment. But none of those things happened. You notice what it says there. Jesus came to the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. None of those things happen. Now, in our culture, we call it rudeness. In their culture, it's much more important. They would call it open hostility. They would call it almost a declaration of war. In other words, Simon has invited Jesus to come here 
to get a dig on him, to show who is really superior, to show who is really the teacher, who is really the rabbi in their midst. And so the question is, what's Jesus going to do? Right? There's a crowd around. He has been insulted. This, this man has basically said, open hostility is what I have for you. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to stand up and walk out? The crowd is waiting to see what he will do. Will he just tell Simon where to go, where to stick it, and, and pop out the door, and that will be it for Simon? We're waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. But as we're waiting, something completely unique happens, something out of the ordinary happens. A woman emerges from the bystanders. A woman in the crowd comes out, and she runs to this table. You see her there kneeling. She runs to the table. She runs to Jesus. And she kneels down. And she begins to weep. And she begins to use her tears to wipe Jesus' feet. She takes her hair down. You don't do that in Jewish society, by the way. Even today in the Middle East, you don't do that. When a woman would only take her hair down in front of her husband. In fact, you could be divorced for taking your hair down in front of another man. She takes her hair down. She begins to wipe Jesus' feet. She breaks open a jar of ointment and begins to rub them and then begins to kiss all over his feet. Probably not like any dinner party that you have ever been to. And what's, what's, what's more interesting is that Luke immediately identifies her. Who is she? She's not an unknown woman. Everybody in the town knows who she is. Luke says she's a woman of the city, a sinner. It's a nice way of saying she is a prostitute. And she has come there to anoint Jesus as if to say, Simon, the Pharisee, if you won't do it, I will do it. Now, there's all kinds of good reasons that she should have stayed on the wall, isn't there? There's all kinds of good reasons she should have stayed back and not gone to Jesus' feet. One, she's not an invited guest. She has no status to be there at that table. She should be on the wall. Two, she was a woman, a second-class citizen in that society. In fact, Jewish men pray daily, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. That was their view of women in that day. There's another reason for her not to approach a table of men. Three, she was a sinner. She did not have the reputation to be at a table of religious people. Four, she certainly didn't have the education. These were learned men. These were rabbis. They were teachers. She had no place there. And then fi finally, she was the talk of the town. Everybody knew what she did for a living, and it wasn't pretty. And so she knew when she stepped out there, people were going to be gawking and gossiping. She had all kinds of good reasons to stay back, but none of these reasons kept her from Jesus. Why? It was clear to me that she had already believed in Jesus, and that even as an outcast, as a sinner, and as a woman, she believed there was a place for her at the feet of Christ. There was a place for her where she belonged at the feet of Jesus. She had already believed that. She had already seen the midday sun, so to speak. She had already seen the glory of Christ. She had already fallen in love with this man. And what does she see? She sees him come into a house and be disrespected. She sees Jesus, the one whom she loves, the one who has forgiven her, walks into this house 
And this Simon, the Pharisee guy, totally disrespects him. He trivializes Jesus. He insults Jesus. He declares open hostility against Jesus. And this woman cannot help but act. She cannot help but rectify the situation. And it's almost as if she is readying herself for battle. You know, I read about eight different commentaries on this passage, and every one of them say she's crying, she's weeping because she's crying over her sin. That could be true. I think she's weeping because she saw Jesus be insulted in this way. I think that is what brought her tears, is the fact that her Savior has been disgraced. And so nothing stops her status, her sex, her past, her social custom, town gossip. Nothing keeps her from valuing and treasuring Christ before all the world. Simon had offended her Lord, and she was going to make that right. She would not let Jesus be seated as some ordinary guest. She was going to make sure that he was honored, and nothing was going to stop her. Just think for a moment about someone who you love, someone you really love. Son, daughter, father, mother, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. And imagine that they were brought, as Simon thought he was tricking Jesus, in front of the whole town to be the brunt of a joke. In front of the whole town to be insulted. What would you do? I thought, what if that was my wife? Simon treated like that. I'd be at her side in a moment. And so if I would be at her side in a moment, why am I so slow when it comes to Christ? When it comes to Jesus? Our world constantly mocks and insults and trivializes and marginalizes Jesus. Where's the church? Where's the warrior worship that this woman shows? She exhibits what I would call warrior worship. She goes into battle to make sure that Jesus is treasured before the world. She doesn't go to culture war. She's not at war with the culture. She doesn't go and smack Simon down. She doesn't go and do some religious act of violence. She quietly and beautifully worships Christ and shows that he is the chief treasure of her life. So why are you and I so slow to demonstrate the supremacy and the infinite worth of Jesus to a watching world? Is it because we have not seen the midday sun? Is it because we have not seen him for ourselves and found him to be beautiful in our sight? Oh, that we would have the eyes of this woman to do what she did. She treasures him above all things. She breaks this ointment. This ointment was a year's wages. So let's just say conservatively $40,000 worth of ointment she pours on Jesus. It was an ointment that would be used to sweeten the breath and to perfume the body so you could see why a woman of her job might need something like that. And yet she pours it out on Jesus as if to say, I won't be needing this anymore. My life is now yours she values jesus above her past life she values jesus above her dignity and her reputation she knows people are going to talk about her and yet she rushes out anyway to warrior worship so there's all kinds of good reasons for us 
not to demonstrate Christ's worth and value to the world, money, custom, social pressure, expectations, our reputation. But don't all those reasons really fall flat in the face of this woman and what she did? What you see here is that there is a place at the feet of Jesus for the outcast. And what this woman asks us is, if you could but see him, God would open your eyes. Now, those are the first two verses. I promise to go faster through the rest. (laughs) This crazy thing has just happened at this party, right? A prostitute runs out from the wall, kisses Jesus' feet. Now what's Simon going to do? Because she's intruded on Simon's plan. And really she's embarrassed Simon because what she said is, all the stuff you wouldn't do, the hospitality you wouldn't show, I've done it for you. I've corrected your social blunder. And so what Simon should do is say, he should, he should thank this woman for, for fixing the situation. He should apologize to Jesus for avoiding it. But what does he do? In verse 39, he has a little thought in his head. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said, If this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is what? She's a sinner. She's a sinner. So instead of apologizing, he judges the woman as a sinner. He judges judges Jesus as unworthy to be a prophet for supposedly not knowing what was going on. Oh, how wrong he is. Oh, how wrong he is on both counts. Now, notice that it was a thought that Simon had in his head, right? He thinks to himself, if Jesus knew this, he wouldn't do this. And then verse 40 says, what? Jesus answered him. He said, this man is a prophet. He doesn't know anything. He's thinking it in his head. But Jesus answers his thought. And I wonder if Simon was thinking, did I just say that out loud? Was that for ever? I know I thought it. Did I say it out loud? He had to be thinking that. And then Jesus says this. I found this striking. Verse 40. Simon, I have something to say to you. The Lord of the world says, Simon, I've got a little something I need to say to you. Correct a couple assumptions. In the Greek, it's a very direct form of blunt address. Something that you probably wouldn't want to hear when someone says it, we know that, right? If somebody uses your name, Jeremy, I've got something I need to tell you. It's about to be a serious conversation. He's not playing around. And I think you get that because what does Simon respond with? Say it, teacher. Say it, rabbi. Now he's, being, now he's using the formality. Now he's being hospitable. Go ahead and say it, teacher. I'm listening. Jesus tells a little parable, a little play within a play. Some people think Shakespeare invented the play within a play when he wrote Hamlet. Actually, Jesus did much earlier. He says this, 41 and 42. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. I would say in our day it's about $70,000. The other owed him 50, seven grand. When they could not pay, when neither could pay, he canceled the debt of both. And he asked Simon, now which of them, Simon, will love them more? What's Simon supposed to say? Well, if he says, well, the one he canceled lesser debt... Everybody knows he's avoiding the question. Everybody knows he's lying. If he says the one he canceled the greater debt, he implicates himself as a man of pride and self-righteousness and bigotry. 
Jesus has now caught him like a rabbit in a trap. He thought he invited Jesus there to be trapped. And now the hunter has become the hunted. Jesus is really good at this stuff. (laughs) He says, Simon, this woman by her love shows that she has been forgiven much. But Simon, by your self-righteousness, you show that you have been forgiven little. And you know not what your debt really is. And therefore you stand in need of me. How does Simon answer? Verse 43, very reluctantly. You see it in the words, I suppose. The one, he says, I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Now at that point, I'm sure Simon's like, exhale. I think it could be over now. You know, Jesus is maybe done with me, but he's not. It's about to get worse. Jesus is about to drill deeper into the exterior of Simon and go even further. Notice the penetrating way that Jesus does this. Verse 44, it says he turns to the woman and says to Simon. That's weird, isn't it? The woman's behind him. He turns to the face of the woman, but he's talking to Simon. It would be as if I said, I turn to the wall to preach to the congregation. All of you would think something is a little weird about this situation. But what Jesus is doing is addressing this woman face to face to say to her, He's saying, I am redeeming her and I am reducing him. She came in humble and she will be exalted. He came in exalted and he is now going to be humbled. This is what he says, 44 to 47. Simon, do you see this woman? What kind of question is that? Of course Simon sees her. He's already commented on her. Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her as a forgiven, redeemed, ransomed child of God? Simon, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, Simon, you think you have very few sins. But you have many. You disgrace this woman, but you yourself are a disgrace because you have tried to place yourself above her. You think you're so good and righteous, but in reality, you are slower of mind and harder in heart than she will ever be. You've shown yourself to be arrogant and judgmental and insensitive and lacking any knowledge of the sin that resides in your heart. You do not see the midday sun. In other words, Simon. And thus you have been forgiven little, little and naturally your love is little. And then Jesus Drops the final hammer on Simon's head in verse 48. He says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. As if to say to Simon, her sins, which are many. He doesn't doesn't minimize her sin. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. But Simon, your sins, which you think are few, are not forgiven. You still stand in need. You still stand in need. Now I know that probably sitting in this room, many of you have been the victim of religious hypocrisy like this woman was. 
You've seen a religious person or church or somebody be arrogant and proud and hurtful to you. And what you need to see here is that long before your experience and long before criticisms of the philosophers like Karl Marx and Bertrand Russell and Richard Dawkins more recently, long before them, Jesus was a bigger critic of religious hypocrisy than anyone else after him ever was or than any of us ever could be. So if you're a critic of religious hypocrisy, join the club with Jesus. He's there right with you. Now, let me just take... Let me kind of take a step back, and I want to try to illustrate this, what's going on, because I realize I've probably been all over the place. Maybe I've lost some of you. And if there's kids in the room, I'm going to tell this, try to do a little parable illustration. Um, and I think even a five- or six-year-old can get it if we do it this way. I want you to imagine Simon's life as an apple tree. And Simon's goal is to produce the best, most luscious, beautiful, gorgeous apple so that everybody will see them and say, now that is a good apple tree. Now the problem is Simon has some good fruit, he has some bad fruit. And so really kind of his view is that it it would be nice if the farmer just kind of comes along every now and then and knocks off some of this bad fruit and then I just have the good fruit and everybody can still see what a good apple tree uh, I actually am. But the problem is, is that he's sick and the roots of his tree are sick. The problem is not in the bad fruit, it's in the bad roots and what he needs is different. But his solution is to keep knocking off a few of the bad apples, a few of the bad behaviors, hide all the bad apples behind him, and pretend that he is not sick. The woman takes a different approach. She puts her bad apples right out in front for everybody to see. Because she knows they're not hidden from God. She's not fooling anybody. She puts them right out in front to see. She knows her problem is not just in the fruit, it's actually in the root. And so she does it. It's not that she wants the the farmer to come by and knock off a couple of bad apples. She wants the farmer to come by and grab hold of the trunk and rip her roots from the ground and replant her fresh and new. So often I think that we are so much like Simon. We're willing to entertain Jesus a little bit, have God come by for a meal or two, knock a couple bad apples off the tree. As long as we keep that really bad stuff back in the closet. Because we don't want anybody to see that. But you don't need God to do that for you. You can manage your behavior. You can, you can be a good person like Simon without God. What you need God to do is to come and uproot you and replant you. And so when I look at Simon, this very upstanding, righteous, good, moral, well-liked person. He is well-liked. Good career, respected person. I look at him and I shudder. How easy it is to be smug and self-satisfied like Simon. I mean, it just lives. It just lives in here. I just, just thought of this. Just Friday night, I was, Amy and I were getting ready to go to bed. Actually, we were already in bed, laying in bed. And Amy said, honey, would you mind getting up and uh, getting me a glass of water? And I said, sure, honey. I would li- like to do that for you. And I picked up the glass and started walking out. And I, I literally stopped halfway to the faucet and turned to her and said, now, Simon was at least smart enough just to say it in his head. I turned to her and said, I, don't, I mean, I don't know where this comes from. Honey, I'm such a good servant of you. I know all the women are so jealous of my wife now. I mean, can you believe I would say that? I just, and as soon as I said it, it was like the words were just, you know, no, bring them back. But that's what lives inside of us. Aren't you grateful that I'm your husband? 
God, aren't you grateful that I'm, I'm on your side? Aren't you grateful I do all these wonderful things for you? Lives inside of us. And oh, how careful we must be if we are church-going people. You and I are part of the establishment. And what Jesus says is there's a way to be part of the establishment. There's a way to be good and moral and well-liked, money-donating, upstanding citizen. And for Jesus to stand in condemnation over you. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and do mighty works and cast out demons? And he will say, dreaded words. I never knew you. You never saw the midday sun. And so I look at Simon. And if there's anybody in this room that's in danger of being Simon, it's me. I'm a pastor. I'm a leader of the religious establishment. So I look at Simon and I tremble. And if you're a church-going, religious person, you ought to tremble. And you ought to pray and beg God for brokenness and for repentance and to be like this woman laid before Jesus. We can do all the right things for all the right reasons. We can love this book and we can know it backwards and forwards and yet we can use it as a weapon to destroy people rather than a, a, a way to repent for ourselves. So if you're reading this book and it's not breaking you, it's not humbling you, it's not causing you to cry out to the Lord for mercy, if it's not pushing you to this sweet childlike faith in free grace alone, then you're not reading it right. You're not getting it. And Jesus says you still stand in need. And of course now we can see what is the real problem with Jesus. The real problem with Jesus, it's not, it's not, it's not the proof Simon sees him right there. He's right there with him. It's not the proof. It's not the intellectual arguments for Simon. It's the fact that this man would dare to stand and look Simon in the face, this knowledgeable, wonderful, upstanding, moral man, and say, you need me. And today, I think the problem is the same. It's not that there's no proof of Jesus and God. I mean, there's plenty of proof. There's plenty of philosophical arguments, scientific arguments. There's plenty of that stuff. I think the problem is that Jesus is willing to stand up and look, 21st century Americans, self-sufficient, independent, in the eye and say, you need me. He is willing to say to the smartest people in our country, you don't know it all. He is willing to say to the most moral people, it's not good enough. You need me. The real problem with Jesus is that he is relentlessly confrontational. And he comes in and says, I will come into your life. I will affect every area of your life. Draw the, draw the line in the sand if you want. I'll rub it out and i step right over it. And I'll affect your career and your sexuality and your recreation and your eating and drinking. And every single thing that you do, I'm going to be part of that. If I'm going to be in your life. The greatest obstacle, the biggest thing that will keep you from God or push God out of your life is your self-sufficiency. Your desire to be independent and self-sufficient. To exist just fine. The real problem with Jesus is that he does not operate on the quid pro quo, quid pro quo basis. Instead, he says, I give you everything. You do nothing. And you fall at my feet. And you worship. And you get joy and satisfaction. Dan Allender says this. He says, The cost for the recipient of God's grace is nothing. And that price is 
No price could be higher for arrogant people to pay. Let me say it again. The cost for the recipient of God's grace is nothing. And no cost could be higher for arrogant people to pay. So what happens to Simon in the end? What happens to him? Do we know? Do we see? We don't really know what happens to him, do we? It doesn't tell us. This is what we know. We know that when a self-righteous, arrogant man invites Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus goes. We know when he snubs Jesus and insults Jesus, Jesus stays. We know that when he hardens his heart against Jesus and against this woman, Jesus teaches. And we know that when Simon hardened his heart even further, he flings open the doors to paradise to this self-righteous Man, He says in verse 50 to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. As if to say to Simon, What about you, Simon? Will you go in peace today? What about you, Simon? Will, will your sins be forgiven by me or will the price be too high? How about us? Is the price too high? Is it too hard to say the problem is not just in the fruit, but it's in the root of the tree as well. God is flinging open the door. And he says, I am sufficient to save the self-righteous and the unrighteous. I am sufficient to save the moral and the immoral, the religious and the irreligious. No matter the past, no matter the present, no matter the future, I am sufficient to save. And he flings the door open. And he says, if the gospel is true, then you can come too. If the gospel is really true, You don't have to pretend anymore. If the gospel is really true, you don't have to pretend to be the best person who has all the answers and has it all together. If the gospel is really true, you don't have to hide those skeletons in the closet from Jesus or from us anymore. If the gospel is really true, you can come to the feet of Jesus undignified like this woman. You can come to the feet of Jesus undignified, uncaring about reputation or status or what everybody else will say. And you can fall at the feet of Jesus. And you can see the midday sun. Oh, that you would walk through the door. Let's pray.